pray one more time. Father, we wouldn't know you unless you made yourself known to us and you have seen fit to make yourself known in your word. So we ask that you give us wisdom as we study it now. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. You can grab a seat. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And tonight is going to be our last night in 2 Corinthians for a couple months, actually. Uh, Three months, to be precise. Uh, Next week, we're going to be starting a series on the church and talking about what the church is and what it looks like to participate in the church and to be a healthy church member. And then after that, we're going to be walking through the season of Lent along with millions of Christians around the world. And we'll pick back up in 2 Corinthians in the summer and hopefully actually finish it. But I'm not making promises anymore about that because we were supposed to be done six months ago with this book and it just keeps going. So tonight is our last night with the church in Corinth and all of the problems that they seem to get themselves into. And if it's your first time with us or or maybe you've just kind of forgotten where we've come from, last we were in this passage or last we were in this book, we left off at the end of chapter 7. And the church in Corinth is one that has gone a long way in the wrong direction. They've embraced these ideas that are just contrary to the gospel. They've rejected Paul as the official leader of their church and just sort of picked the people that told them what they wanted to hear. And they have gone a long way out of the way. So Paul, in, I think, just his graciousness, has done his very best to go after Corinth to bring them back Uh, to call them to repent of all of the craziness that they've embraced and all the the wild ideas that they've accepted. And ultimately, it's worked. And in chapter 7, Paul basically describes what it looked like when the Corinthians sort of came to their senses. Uh, I don't know if you've had such an experience in your life where you've just been doing something really stupid. Uh, And, okay, I know you've had that experience because everybody has. But there's, there's certain moments when I've been in the midst of doing something really, really dumb where the scales sort of fall off my eyes, uh, and I realize, holy cow, this is really dumb. And then everybody around me says, I know, we've been telling you that. And I go, you might have, but I didn't hear you until now. This is really dumb. And the Corinthians have had this moment, and they've realized that what they've been doing is not working, nor is it what they should have been doing, and so they repent and they turn from their sins. And Paul spends the end of chapter 7 describing what that looks like. He says that when they sort of came to their senses, they were eager to clear their names. He says that they were indignant at the fact that they had been deceived and gone in the wrong direction, that they developed this healthy fear of God, that there was a longing and a zeal to make things right. And so the last time we were in this passage, we asked the question, what would it look like if we repented the way Corinth repented? When we realized that we were walking in sin, that we were eager to turn from it, we were uh, indignant at the things that had led us astray, that we had this healthy fear of God. So this week we pick up in chapter 8, verses 1 through 12. Let me read it for us, and we'll walk through it. Paul says this, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy their extreme, and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. 
begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. So I mentioned what passage sort of led into this. We finished 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And if you were reading this letter without the chapters and verses, which is how it was written, in case you were wondering, Paul didn't put the chapters and verses in here. It was just a letter. Uh, If you were reading it, you might have gotten a little bit of whiplash between what is in your Bible, the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8. Because at the end of 7, Paul has this sweeping vision of repentance and I talking about how encouraged he is by the way that the Corinthians have handled this and how excited he is that they've turned from their sin and, and how eager he is to, to enter into fellowship with them. And then all of a sudden, chapter 8 hits and he's talking about raising money for Jerusalem and some other church in this city called Macedonia. The car that I learned to drive on, my first car, was this really cheap GMC Sonoma. It was a 95, and it was a manual transmission. Um, And if you don't know how to drive manual transmission, you're in a lower class of person. (laughs) Um, But with manual transmission, um, you you can do this thing called downshifting, and it's a way, I I think it's a way of saving gas. I don't know. I never figured out how to do it. Um, But if you shift gears too quickly and you jump from first gear all the way to fourth gear, there's this jolt that can happen. Or if you come from fourth gear all the way down to first gear with no in-between, it's kind of this whiplash that happens. And it almost feels as if Paul has just shifted from fourth gear to first gear with nothing in between. How did we get from repentance to Macedonian churches and raising money for Jerusalem? But the more that we think about this and the more that I've turned this over in my mind and the more that we consider what is the purpose of 2 Corinthians, it actually is is really abundantly clear that there's a logic behind this. There's a reasoning behind why Paul does this. So I don't consider myself to be a, a particularly arrogant or prideful person And I realize the irony in me saying that about myself, that I might have shot myself in the foot by saying that. But if somebody compliments me in something, it's going to take about 30 of those before I even believe that you're telling me the truth. Uh, And then after 30, I'll go, okay, maybe I didn't do such a bad job with whatever you've just told me I did a good job on. But even in sort of my like low self-esteem state, If I get compliment after compliment after compliment for a long period of time, I can become really arrogant and really pompous. It's it's almost like the kid in elementary school whose parents tell him he's smart as a way to encourage him, but by high school, he's telling everybody else how smart he is. 
And I'm sure that you've known kids like that, or maybe you are the kid like that, where what was meant as encouragement in the beginning has sort of stacked up on itself, and now it just turns you into this really pompous person. Uh, The point being that all of us, when it's piled on, can start to believe our own hype. And I say this because the Corinthians don't have a great track record of living the Christian life. And there's a sense in which if Paul spent the rest of this letter just heaping on superlatives, it seems to me pretty likely that the Corinthians would go, you know, yeah, we are a pretty good church. We, we really did handle that well. I'm really glad we're not Galatians. Man, go Corinth. Go team. And, and there's a sense in which everything Paul says they misinterpret. And they, they go off on these tangents And so it's almost this mercy on Paul's part that he looks at what they've done well and he acknowledges what they have done with great value and valor. And he says, great job. You've repented well. I'm so encouraged at the way that you've turned from your sin. I'm so excited about what God has done among you to bring you back to the truth. Now let me tell you about what God is doing everywhere else. Lest you turn inward on yourself and only think about how awesome you are. One commentator puts it like this. He says that Paul turns immediately from his celebration of Corinthian repentance to the happy news of God's work elsewhere. This sudden shift is an implicit reminder to the Corinthians that they are not the only objects of God's love and care. It's as if Paul looks at them and he says, this is great. It's so exciting what God has done here. And the coolest thing is that God is doing this elsewhere. Let me tell you about it. And so he turns to talk about the Macedonians. But I think there's probably another reason why there's this sudden shift here. Leslie Newbegin is a missiologist, or was a missiologist. He wrote on evangelism and discipleship throughout the world. And when he talks about conversion... He talks about it in a way that is a little bit different from the way that you and I might think about conversion. Because when we talk about somebody being converted and becoming a Christian, I think that many of us in our minds think that, well, this person used to think that Jesus was a really cool ancient Judean modern maker, woodworker, who would have had a booth in Indy Flea Market where he sold his trinkets. But now he's our Savior and Lord. When we think about conversion, we think that there's just change of mind about Jesus that takes place. That's absolutely true. You cannot become a Christian until you come to write thoughts about Jesus and his work and his life and his death and his resurrection. But what Leslie Newbigin says is that over the course of the Christian life, there's really three conversions that should take place. The first is conversion to God. Maybe you didn't believe in God, but now you not only believe that God exists, but that he sent his son to die for your sins. Or maybe you didn't really have a lot of fond feelings towards God, even though you thought he existed, but now you've come to love him because he first loved you. There's this conversion that takes place. But what Leslie Newbigin says is that there's two others that should happen. One should be your conversion to the world. And by that, he means that once you've come to realize what God has done for you, You should turn to the world and say, the nations must know about the power of the gospel. A Christian who has not experienced conversion to the world, who doesn't have a heart for the nations, hasn't really reached maturity. But there's a third one that he lists, and it's conversion to the church. And what he means by that is not that you look at the church and go, it has no problems, it's perfect, it's wonderful. Because that would be naive, that would be foolish. There's lots of problems in the church. 
But what he says is that when we come to Jesus and we make up our minds about Jesus, there's a sense in which our minds need to change about the church because Jesus loved the church enough to die for it. And we as his people have to love the things that Jesus loved, and he very clearly loved the church. So it seems like Paul's thinking in these categories. Because Paul has mentioned to the Corinthians in his last letter that there are Christians in Jerusalem who, for whatever reason, are suffering. They're impoverished. We know that there was a famine around 40 AD in that city, so they very likely might be starving. And in his first letter, he says, you guys need to contribute money to the Christians in Jerusalem because they need your help. And when the Corinthians turned and tucked and ran from Paul, they stopped caring about all the other Christians in the world. They stopped raising money for the church in Jerusalem. And so what Paul essentially does is he says, hey, it's great that you and I are cool, but now that you're back, you've got brothers and sisters who are starving and they need your help. And so you need to help them. It's almost as if there's a prodigal child and maybe he runs away from home. He leaves his parents and his family behind. It's one thing for that kid to come back and make right with his parents. But any good mom or dad is gonna say, hey, I'm not the only one that you hurt when you tucked and ran. You've got brothers and sisters you need to talk to. And this is what Paul does. As he says, it's awesome that you've repented and you've turned, but you've got brothers and sisters that you've left out to dry. And we need to talk about that now. And so he begins by talking about what God has done in the church in Macedonia. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So he talks about how the Macedonians have given to help the Christians in Jerusalem. And it's important to look at how he frames this. He says, we want you to know about the grace of God given in Macedonia. And then he describes what the grace of God has done, which is that it has caused these poor Macedonians in the middle of deep poverty to give generously. There's a cause and effect relationship here. God gives his grace, and in response to that, the Macedonians give of what they have. But this, this is the cause and effect relationship throughout the whole of the Bible. Because I think we need to understand this biblical reality. The mercies of God in your life are not simply meant to be experienced as warm fuzzies, like the sort of thing you get at a Dave Matthews concert when he plays Crash. That's not how the mercies of God work. I don't like Dave Matthews, by the way. That was not a funny joke. Um, so... The mercies of God, are, they're not just a feeling in your stomach. They're not just a warm fuzzy. But they're meant to spur you towards action. And you see this throughout the Bible. In God's kindness, it leads us to repentance. In God's mercy, he loves us. And what does that do? It turns us to love him. We love him because he first loved us. In God's mercy, he forgives us. And because of that, we forgive one another. And you come to the Macedonians. God gives his grace. And in response, the Macedonians give graciously. Understand this. There's a sense in which, if you're one of those academic types who loves books like me, you can study the mercy of God 
academically in this cold, callous, armchair theologian sort of way, but if that's all you have, that's not Christianity. And if all you have is an intellectual knowledge of God's mercy, you're not a Christian. Because I have plenty of atheist professors who could explain Christian doctrine to me well and better than most churchmen. The mercies of God are not simply things that we know in our minds. They are realities that we live in. The realities that we experience and these realities cause us to act and live and think and move and be different than who we were before we encountered them. The Macedonians experience God's mercy and his grace and they give to people who are suffering. But look at how they view their giving. Verse 3. They gave according to their means, as I can testify, beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So the Macedonians are literally begging Paul and the apostles, please let us give something. And, and we're told that they are in deep poverty, but they view their giving as a favor. Another translation is an act of grace to be able to relieve the saints. The Macedonians are a people who've experienced that conversion to the church that Leslie Newbegin talks about. The Macedonians realize that they are not an island unto themselves. They realize that there's not just the Macedonian church and everybody else, but they are a part of something that is bigger than their community in their city. And they realize that they have brothers and sisters in Jerusalem who are suffering and need help. And they understand that when one part of the body of Christ suffers, everyone suffers with them or ought to suffer with them. The Corinthians should have understood that because the verse that I just referenced is in 1 Corinthians. And the Corinthians stopped helping when they ran away from Paul. The Macedonians, even in their poverty, say, I have brothers and sisters in Jerusalem who need help, and I will do whatever I can to help them. They understand the unity of the body of Christ across buildings and counties and states and national boundaries. I remember the first time that I experienced this in any real way. It was probably early on in college, freshman or sophomore year. And I was scrolling through Facebook instead of doing anything related to actual college. And I came across this article about a pastor named Yusuf in Iran. And Yusuf had converted to Christianity in his teens. And that's something that is technically illegal in Iran if you sort of extrapolate the law in a certain way. And so he had been thrown into prison and sentenced to death. He'd been a Christian for 15 years and somehow through the legal system had finally been put in prison. And I remember reading that as like a 20-year-old and just being so angry at the story. 
And it wasn't the sort of anger that's produced when somebody writes something on their blog that makes you mad. It wasn't the sort of petty anger that happens from time to time. It was this sort of deep-seated indignance, indignity, this, this outrage injustice. And for the first time, there was a sense for me that I looked at what was happening in Iran and I said, I do not know him, but he is my brother in the Lord. And he and I are united to the person of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I am outraged at the fact that he faces injustice. Now, I did what any angry college student does, and I posted about it on Facebook, (laughs) and I did nothing else because I didn't know what else to do at the time. But as you pass through this ministry, my deep prayer is that you begin to realize that we are not the only Christians in the world and that you are united by the work of Christ and the power of the Spirit to brothers and sisters across the globe. And my prayer is that when you see the martyrdom of Coptic Christians in Egypt, you would be provoked, you would be outraged, you wouldn't look on that with passive indifference as though there are some strangers that met some unfortunate end, but that they're your brothers and sisters who've been counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the gospel. When you hear about the underground church in China, my deepest prayer is that like the Macedonians, you would hear about their affliction and you would long to do something so that they can stand up under the oppression that they experience through their government. One of the reasons that we go to Scotland is that I sat in an office with Ricky and he told me about how churches are being forced to sell their buildings to strip clubs and bars because they do not have the resources or the means to do the work of ministry. And I said, that should not be, and we should do something about it. And man, my prayer is that in this ministry, like the Macedonians, you would earnestly desire the grace of taking part in the relief of the saints across the world, that you would be a global Christian and not a regional Christian. But this desire to serve the church, I mean, we've been talking about it in national terms. It doesn't have to just be you getting on a plane and going across the pond. There are needs of Christians in this community that you can meet, and there are needs of Christians in this church that you can do something about. College and career is a ministry among ministries at Bay Life. Middle school and high school ministry desperately need male leaders to train up godly high school students. Children's ministry desperately needs people to help them train up children in the knowledge of the gospel. This idea of being earnest to participate in the relief of the saints doesn't just require that you hop on a plane. You can do it here and now and this week after you pass a background check. I pray that we would be like the Macedonians. We would earnestly desire to participate in the grace of supporting the saints. Paul goes on. He says in verse six, accordingly we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and in speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. And so Paul says, in essence, he's sending Titus back 
And he's sending Titus back with the understanding that the Corinthians will contribute whatever they can to help the people in Jerusalem who are struggling. And then he lists these things that are actually really positive about the Corinthians. He talks about how they are uh, excelling in faith and in speech and in knowledge and in earnestness and in their love for the apostles, for Paul specifically. All of these things, in many ways, they're the marks of Christian maturity. If you saw somebody who was excelling in faith and in earnestness and in knowledge, like if they were really smart and could explain to you the Trinity in a way that wasn't heretical and made perfect sense entirely and you had no questions, you would see that and say, that is a mature Christian or a maturing Christian. And at the end of that, Paul includes the act of grace, which is giving to the support of the saints. It's almost as if he says to them, I see that you're maturing in all of these areas, but if you truly want to mature, you will care about the needs of other Christians and you will give to them. Excel in this act of grace. Now, this is not a passage about tithing because Paul's not asking for a tithe in the modern sense. This is a one-time need. The Christians in Jerusalem are starving and they're impoverished and they need help. But the principle of giving sacrificially as a mark of Christian maturity, that holds true. I mean, there is a sense in which if you've been a Christian for weeks and months and years and decades and you've never given of your time and your energy and your comfort and your financial resources for the good of God's people, there's a sense in which you haven't even begun to step into maturity. Until you give sacrificially, not just your money, because I realize that we're all, all over the place. Some of us are college students, some of us are looking for jobs, some of us have jobs and we're still broke. But until you are willing to give for the sake of the people of God, you have not begun to step into the mature Christian life. Earnestness is awesome. Knowledge is awesome. Love is awesome and good. But this act of grace, caring for God's people and giving for their good, Paul lists that right along all of the other things that mark a mature Christian. He's gonna go on later in this chapter to mention that the Corinthians are wealthy. They're pretty well off. Uh, And all the commentaries that I read as I got ready for this series, that Corinth was sort of compared to Los Angeles in terms of modern equivalence. It's this sort of cultural hub with lots of financially well-off people who are, are able to and capable of giving their time to artistic pursuits and things like that because they've got a lot of money and they can afford to do that. And he mentions that the Corinthians are wealthy, And the Macedonians are not. And the Macedonians, out of their poverty, still give. And then he makes this astounding statement in verse 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian and somebody drags you here, or you've been dragging yourself here, or or whatever it might be. And you hear this idea, because this is really what Paul is saying to the Corinthians, is you who are well-off need to care for, for your brothers and sisters who are not well-off. You who are wealthy, you need to care for the poor among you. And, and maybe you're not a Christian, and you hear that, and you say, you know, that's, I can get behind that. That's, that's in keeping with, with my secular humanist ideals, that, that the well-off should care for those who are not well-off. And 
I would happily agree with you that, that the well-off, caring for the not well-off, that, that's a, a virtuous thing to do. But I suppose the thing I would want to say is that the fruit of our actions is not more important than the garden from which it grows. Why we do things is almost as important as what we do. And there's this, this incredible book called A Clockwork Orange, written by Stanley Kubrick, and that is the primary question of the book. Is it better to do the right thing for the wrong reasons or to do the wrong thing freely? And I'll tell you, by the end of the book, it's pretty clear that I would prefer you not do bad things at all. But there is something about being forced to do the right thing against your will that does not sit right. And, and at the end of the book, I think there's this sense in which it matters just as much why we do it as what we do. And I guess I would want to ask you, if you're not a believer here, first of all, I'm so glad you're here. Please come back next week. Drink all of our Dunkin' Donuts coffee. It's fantastic. But where, where, do, you, where do you derive this principle that, that the strong should care for the weak? Do you derive it from time and space and matter swirling in the vacuum of eternity with no cause or purpose or rhyme or reason? I don't think you can get to that idea from there. Do you derive it from natural law? I've been to Africa. I've seen what natural law looks like. The strong don't care for the weak. Or do you derive it from history? I'm not sure how you could. One prominent philosopher from Harvard said that history is full of sound and fury but signifies absolutely nothing. So where do we get this idea that the wealthy should care for the weak? Paul doesn't ground it in any of those things. He doesn't ground it in the cosmos, he doesn't ground it in natural law, and he doesn't ground it in history, in the traditional sense. He grounds it in the incarnation of Jesus. He says the strong should care for the weak because of the incarnation. He affirms this wild and audacious claim at the heart of Christian doctrine that Jesus being in very nature God and by virtue of that possessing all things set aside his glory to take up our frailty and he laid aside his rights so that our rights might be restored. Paul says, you Corinthians who are wealthy should care for the poor because the son of God who abounded in riches took up poverty to make us wealthy in the kingdom of God. And I don't know if you can have a stronger foundation for justice and sacrificial giving beyond the idea that God himself has done that and we as God's people should do likewise. That the infinitely powerful and deserving and eternal son of God steps into time and into poverty so that his people might be made rich. So he concludes this passage by saying, finish doing what you set out to do. And I think as we consider sort of the incarnational impulse for giving and serving and caring for people, there's a sense in which this is kind of an indictment of us as Christians. And if our service and care for the poor and willingness to sacrifice, if it's rooted in the incarnation of Jesus, there is a sense in which when we fail to serve, and give sacrificially and care for the poor, what we are saying is we don't understand Jesus. Or we're saying we don't care. 
Because if it's rooted in the incarnation and we choose still not to do it, we're saying, I don't get it. Perhaps there is no greater picture of Jesus' sacrificial giving than what we celebrate every week in the Lord's Supper. Jesus doesn't just give us his time. He doesn't just give us whatever money he had as a poor Jewish carpenter. He gives us his very life. And every week you're reminded of that as we sit here over grape juice and bread and we repeat the words of Jesus. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Jesus gives us his life so that we might live. And we as his people should in turn pour ourselves out for the sake of one another. So let's pray. Father, uh, these are weighty ideas. There's a lot to take in here. There's a lot to think through. God, I pray that you give us wisdom to do that. Give us the ability to think about these things, to look at our own lives and ask, where is it that I have not been willing to sacrifice and to give, whether it's my time or my finances or my comfort? Lord, I pray that as we as we try to ground this in something that we would look to Christ, we would realize that Christ has given everything for us and so we in turn must give for the sake of one another. As we come to communion, give us hearts that are repentant. Give us uh, hearts that are grateful and thankful. And meet with us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.